0: Welcome to Spark Science. I'm your host, Regina Barber-DeGraff, an astrophysicist in the Pacific Northwest, who, like the rest of you, is spending a lot of time indoors during this global pandemic. During these uncertain times, I thought it'd be a good idea to call up an expert in infectious disease, Dr. Vijay Bola. He joined us remotely to talk about the history of vaccines, this pandemic and COVID-19, and the reality of outbreaks in films. Because of our ever-changing landscape of this international crisis, this is the fastest turnaround we've ever done in Spark Science history. Most of our shows don't air until months after the interview, which you'll notice for the rest of the season, but this show was produced within days thanks to our amazing crew. We hope you enjoy our discussion with Dr. Bola while you're at home doing your part to flatten the curve. You are an infectious disease fellow. Tell us what that entails, what your job entails right now, and then we'll kind of get into some questions of what our listeners probably have right now.
1: (laughs) Well, that's an interesting question because that's sort of two different questions. What an infectious disease fellow is and what an infectious disease fellow's duties during the time of the greatest pandemic we've had in a hundred years are two slightly different things. I'll I'll attempt to address them both. So after specializing in internal medicine, for example, you can choose a different specialty. So my choice is infectious diseases. It's usually done as a two to three year program where you spend most of your time focusing on taking care of patients within the first two years. Um, the, you can do some research in there, especially three-year programs. So we round in the hospital. We see patients. We take care of patients. We give advice, consult on patients specifically how to manage patients with infectious diseases issues. Um, at a time like this, we uh, you know it's all hands on deck, and uh, we the infectious diseases department as a whole is very much involved in figuring out how do we best uh, manage this. Uh, tremendous challenge that we have to face as a healthcare system
0: I'd like to kind of go over what kind of virus this is
1: viruses in general are microscopic <laughs> uh, they sort of basically have uh, types of DNA or RNA uh, they basically work by injecting their genetic material into the host and using the host cells to generate the viral genetic material so they they sort of Use you to take over production of their progeny,
0: right. which,
1: which often uh, virus, there are viruses, many viruses that just live with us for life and we would never know. And there are some viruses like this virus that is a very deadly uh, is a very deadly pathogen. So the coronaviruses are a group of RNA viruses, um, and they particularly cause respiratory tract infections. So there are some uh, there's some similarity between this particular virus, for example, and SARS, you know, which is a different type of, of coronavirus. Uh, so they're just one of these groups of viruses that has a propensity to cause respiratory illnesses, and uh, this one just happens to have two skills that are particularly adept at causing human disease, which is the ability to spread rapidly and the ability to cause disease and death. Many of the viruses that we are seeing, you know, we, uh, swine flu, bird flu, uh, terms that they don't use anymore because it does, uh, it, it has created a lot of problems in the past, but it does sort of hint at the fact that a lot of these viruses originate from animals. They're, they are viruses that exist, and then it just takes one mutation, human and animal contact, to sort of absorb that mutation. If it jumps into a human, it can cause pretty significant disease, as this particular virus does. It's absolutely fascinating how these organisms that are with us cause disease, uh, cause disease outbreaks. Uh, Just the pathophysiology of it, the biology of it, um, it's, it's just absolutely fascinating from a strictly biological point of view to a great extent more than other diseases infectious diseases are very much related to social political and economic situations so for example uh crowded uh crowded impoverished situations are really ravished by an infectious disease way more than a fairly wealthy uh type setting uh, where just simply the space between human beings is, right. uh, is, is present. You know, the Plague of Antoine, which was somewhere uh, around 164 AD, was uh, something that uh, arrived in Rome by Roman legionnaires who were coming back from conquering Mesopotamia, which is where Iraq and Iran were. And, you know, many scholars sort of say that this was the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. As we know, this was the end of Pax Romana, which was 200 years of Roman peace. And basically, this this, this plague just wiped out maybe 5 million people. Uh, 25% of the population really led to the decline of the Roman Empire. We We don't think of this, you know, now. Even we live on, we live in the continent of America from, you know, Alaska all the way down to Chile. Uh, what we don't understand is part of the reason uh, this part of the world was conquered so effectively uh, was that there was a fairly advanced civilization at the time, but probably 90% of the indigenous population all the way from uh, Inca, Aztec territory to the Mississippi Valley, was just wiped out by, uh, by disease before even uh, European settlers uh, came into conflict with them. This was part of the reason why this conquest of this continent was so simple. And so the historical understandings are just absolutely fascinating. And what is interesting when we see something like coronavirus uh, happen is that we realize as much as we are modern, powerful, et cetera, we are connected, we are human beings and our actions interact with each other. It's not okay to say, this is a segment of the population that's poor. We don't need to care about them. Things like Ebola, things like coronavirus make us realize that we need to all cooperate.
0: I'm assuming you were interested in medicine when you were growing up. Like, were you thinking of plagues wiping out uh, civilizations?
1: Me doing medicine was a complete accident. I just like biology in general. In Trinidad, there is uh, where I'm from, you know, if you choose a field that... Uh, goes straight into the straight sciences, there aren't necessarily as many opportunities to do research as, for example, if you do medicine. So I had the opportunity to do medicine, but I turned out to like it quite a lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I mean, studying infectious disease, I I feel like it is very much of a a researcher kind of, I I feel like you're still kind of studying biology, right? Like you're still kind of in that world. It
1: definitely is. Um, It definitely is very biologically you need to understand that biology. Uh, but what's interesting is that you, you can take infectious disease and go straight into a bench-type sciences, or you could be a clinical person who sees patients, or you can be a public health person who's out there in the field with Ebola research and, you know, emergencies and outbreaks and managing finances uh, for health-related concerns. So the opportunities are really, really endless. It's, it's really a, it gives you amazing opportunity, breadth and depth of scope.
0: So, I mean, you, you had said this earlier, this, this idea of people kind of don't realize um, what infectious diseases have done to, to populations over time and like how that's actually shaped our history. Can you share with our listeners any other like, you know, really impactful story that maybe you tell a lot related to infectious disease that people don't really relate to like their lives now or the history they know of now, you know?
1: Right. I, you know, I like to think of... Us as being uh, this human species as being sort of a latecomer. So, bacteria have been around for like three billion years. Viruses have been around for like you know one billion. I'm very very rough numbers because they change. But I'm an
0: astronomer. I, I go like five billion, two billion. They're the same. Like
1: <laughs> right billions. Let's just say billions.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Human
1: beings as we know have been around for no more than three hundred thousand years. Like that's been generous you know we learned to speak 50,000 years ago so we came and we've evolved with bacteria and viruses in us and they change we are they part of our biology they're on our skin they're in our guts and they change based on our mood it's it's really impactful um, and they have limited human populations for a vast majority of time, we, you know, we lived as hunter-gatherers, we lived as bands in places where diseases couldn't destroy us. Um, And as we started to get in groups, you know, the larger the groups, the more susceptible you are to bands of diseases. And when we, at this point, you know, within the last one to 200 years, we've been able to control these things a bit more. And if we did not... Our world and our life would be very different if polio uh, and smallpox were still real possibilities um, as they were in you know a generation or two ago we would have people who look different people who walk different many more people are cripples pockmarked disfigured individuals Um, you get a bad pneumonia, you could have a fistula with just draining pus out of your chest. You could have bones that drain pus because if you have a deep-seated infection, we would physically look different as a species. You know, we complain about acne, which is related to infectious diseases, related to propionibacterium acnes, which causes pimples. We would (laughs) have a lot more problems with infectious diseases than just pimples. Um, And, you know, we need to understand that. We would be like, a much more disfigured population without some of these um, tools that we have, such as vaccination, for example, to keep uh, diseases under control.
0: You're listening to Spark Science with our guest, Dr. Vijay Bola, and we're talking about what makes a quote unquote successful virus.
1: What's fascinating is that you could dig into history and the vaccination goes way beyond, uh, you know, Edward Jenner, who's considered the founder of modern vaccination. And you have to understand, these times people thought diseases were plagued from God and this dark death that you literally had to be afraid of the way we were afraid of war or crime now. Their practice, what they noticed was that if they took the scab of someone who healed from smallpox, ground it up, and basically um, blew it into the nostril of a well person, they did not seem to get smallpox. They did not seem to die of smallpox. So that had been practiced for a very, very long time, some areas in China, maybe some in India. Um, We don't even know when it really, really started. I don't think there's any evidence. Modern vaccination, however, started in 1796. So uh, Edward Jenner, who's considered the founder of modern vaccinology, he was an interesting individual. He was actually invited to go with Robert Cook, uh, Sir Cook's second expedition, but he declined because he was a, a sort of biologist type person first. So he's someone who really thought outside the box. And what he noticed was that the milkmaids who worked with cows, because <laughs> that's where milk comes from, they would get these pock marks from cows. So it would be called cowpox. Right. Now, what he noticed is that they had these pockmarks, but the milkmaids did not seem to suffer from smallpox. Mm. The way other people suffer from smallpox. So he began to think, does exposure to cowpox protect you from exposure to human disease that we call smallpox? So what he did, he got a 13-year-old boy.
0: Yeah. Because that's what you do. do. They didn't, didn't have any of the, uh, the ethical regulations that we have now.
1: He would go to jail in like, you know, heartbeat if he did this now. And right. he basically took a needle and pricked the pox of one of the, the milkmaids and inoculated that by sticking that same needle into the skin of the, uh, of the boy who developed, you know, some cowpox-looking uh, mm-hmm. symptoms and then later inoculated him with actual smallpox and noticed that he did not develop the full-blown disease of smallpox. And he repeated that experiment a few times and that's basically the founder of, uh, the founding principle of modern vaccinology and how, how science works. You need to just do something once. If it works, you know it works, that's an anchor. You figure out the principles around what makes it work and then you could build around that principle. so it started with cowpox and smallpox and now we have you know protection against vaccines against malaria etc and we so take it for granted that when there's an Ebola outbreak we're like, okay we need a vaccine This is because we understand intuitively that these things are very very important
0: yeah.
1: at the same time there is a bit of this uh, you know fair vaccines that seems to be very unfounded. Well, firstly if your children were not vaccinated, you probably would not have all of them surviving into adulthood to begin with. That's just the reality. That's the vaccine, vaccination is single greatest accomplishment of medicine. And you know, my, there, there just isn't solid anti-vaccination literature. Probably the kids who have autism, what is believed in many scientific circles, is that the time frame that autism uh, is is noticed just happens to coincide with some of the schedules of the vaccines. So they mm-hmm. just happen at the same time, but it's not a cause and effect relationship.
0: Because it's a developmental scale.
1: It, exactly. It's, okay. It has to be something that has to be in utero, something that we don't understand. By focusing on blaming vaccines for other problems, we don't put the resources into to figure out what cause actually causes those problems.
0: Our history is filled with like, us trying to tackle these big things. It's just, we haven't done it quick, like, in these quick moments right they've been like decades of work um but as a medical professional um how close is what we're dealing with right now to any movies that exist i am i'm just going to go into pop culture i'm gonna do it
1: (laughs) (laughs) so it's it's really not close to movies because what people like in movies are like you know that movie where you just see someone with the disease and you drop dead Um, that's the stuff that you know Yeah. Someone walks into a room with a disease and you drop dead. A virus that does that is actually an unsuccessful virus. That virus fails in life because it kills you before you can spread (laughs) its progeny to infect other people.
0: This is good. This is good. This is very helpful. Okay.
1: Sort of the worst case scenario for human beings is that combination of something that spreads well and then kills you later on. So HIV, for example, mm. was one of those viruses that, if you if you were to think of a virus in terms of how it, you know, as a as a, as a plotting enemy, it was brilliant. Mm. HIV had the ability to lie dormant in a human being for years, mm. you know, ten years before it really went into gay to cause disease. That means you are perfectly healthy individual walking around for up to 10 years before something happened to prove that you, so there was this 10 year spread that people would have it and go around just infecting other people. And so that's the sort of, um, you know, that, that sort of a virus that has that stealth capacity
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then kills um, and, and HIV killed prior to, to the medications that we have now, HIV was considered 100% fatality. So it was one a... of the
0: pandemics. I looked up all the pandemics that have happened in the last uh, hundreds of years, yeah.
1: Yep. It really affected, like countries in sub-Saharan Africa could have completely collapsed because of HIV because it primarily infected the young, working, productive individuals. So it had a, it had a selective socioeconomic toll That was incredibly impactful.
0: This is Spark Science, and we're talking to Dr. Vijay Bola about the world's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But we try to end on a positive note.
1: We need to respect this as a very potent adversary that we have to manage in a certain way. If we look from country to country, we can see how different nations have... And I think what what really seems to be, if we have um, a public health infrastructure, we have a, a leadership that takes things seriously, the impact is not that bad. So when it began in China, one of the first physicians, for example, he was shut down, he had to retract the fact that he brought this to light. He later died of this virus, That was an opportunity to sort of keep this under control. Then there are many leaders across the world who sort of ignore, and still do, who sort of ignore this problem. The truth is we have so much resources to mitigate. We can't just make this not a problem, but we have resources to mitigate these things. Germany has done, compared to other countries, a fairly good job of keeping mortality down, of tracking the contacts, and keeping yeah. things under control. And they Taiwan never- too. Yeah.
0: Taiwan's been pretty...
1: Taiwan has been good. Japan so far has been good. Lots of other Asian countries have done a pretty good job. Um, but countries that have been way too relaxed for too long have been hit very hard. This is sort of the enemy we've been expecting. Mm. We've had SARS, we've had MERS. We know that respiratory viruses spread v- fairly easily because there's something that we, you know, if you have a virus in your airway, by coughing, you expel that virus, you share that virus around. Um, One of the things that seems to be tricky with this one is that it seems that before you're sick and after you recover, you can still, we're not clear on it yet, you can spread the virus. It's not okay to say, I'm not coughing, I can't spread. And that's sort of the term they use that the, the media is use sort of stealth spreader, someone who feels well, but is able to spread the virus. Right. And then it has a, the majority of people who contract it do not become hospitalized. Right? right. So we need to, so we need to understand that to take the hysteria out of the disease.
0: We're not dying. We're not getting sick. We're not like the high risk people, but it's, it's, pretty hard being in a global pandemic and being super anxious, you know, all the time. So like, how do we, how do we help people like that?
1: One dying of coronavirus is not pleasant. So the alternative of just staying in your house is actually a very, very mild uh, issue compared to dying of coronavirus. And I think there's a lot, especially in America, there's a lot to be thankful for. A friend said um, they've been putting on weight because they're just home eating. Uh pandemics and afflictions of infectious disease usually leads to like starvation, death. We don't have that here. Right. In this country for the most part. Quarantine, it's like it's annoying. Many of these lower income countries, you know, massive slums, etc., they don't have the financial reserve to simply stay home. Yeah. So they can't do those things. They have to go out there to make ends meet day by day. Um the, the, the nations don't have the resources to take care of, of people for months on end uh, if they keep falling sick so coming to the hospital. So, um, one, think about the context, think about what's going on in other parts of the world and just feel grateful and thankful that we have internet, we can speak with friends on the phone. We It's an opportunity to spend time with friends and family. Now, I don't want to be uh, blithe about this because there are issues where people are concerned about losing their job. The, the issue on the economy is very, very, uh, it's very, very brutal. This it is it's going to affect the economy. Yeah. But if we're alive, we yeah. can rebuild be our economy.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if one person has a disease and they go out 10 people and give it to 10 people, those 10 people spread the disease. It multiplies. That's where the thought of exponential stuff comes from. If people are in pockets and they stay at home, they can't give it to people if they have it. And it's kind of hard to get it if you don't get, come in contact with someone. Right. And so the idea of flattening the curve is we're basically saying, let's just assume many people are going to get it. But if we distance ourselves, maybe we'll get it slower. And therefore, if the hospital is not overwhelmed and you get to the hospital and you're very sick, you'll get a bed, you'll get a ventilator. Versus if we all go to the hospital needing ventilators at the same time, we basically all die because there are no ventilators left to take care of us. So that's where the idea of flattening the curve comes from. The problem and the reason why we don't want to do that is that the economy starts shutting down. The economy is not about money. It's about our ability to get goods and services. And if, for example, you're at home, but there's no infrastructure for you to get food at home, Because there still need to be people working to have the lights on and get food, then that doesn't work. And so that's the stuff that we need to we need to balance. How do we how do we self-quarantine yet have the economy working not from the point of view of want not even we want a strong economy, but to support the idea that people quarantine and need to be taken care of. just think of what happened to the Roman Empire in that story we just told. Basically, one disease is thought to be responsible for the end of the Roman Empire in Rome, as we thought, leading to them migrating to Constantinople. (laughs) And then about 500 years later, another plague, um, the Plague of Justinian, came and is thought to be responsible for the end of the decline of of the Roman Empire there. So the impact of disease could be so much worse that what we need to do is say, look, we need to be thankful that we have so many remedies, we have so many things. There's something we know we can do to really get through, to really help ourselves get through this alive. Let's just do it. Yes. I think to some extent, um, the projections, there are grim projections, we have to be honest, both for the economy and the number, the the estimated mortality from this disease. We knew this was coming, we just didn't take it seriously. This is not something to be hysterical about, but something for us to think very carefully about how we respond to this thing in the future. We need to have good infrastructure in place, um, leaders who listen and act early. This can go on anywhere from six months to a year. If we get a cure very quickly, if we get a vaccine very quickly, it may bring that time back and we get us back on our feet. We just have to go through it. Um, we have to bite the bullet because there's gonna, there are gonna be tough times. But after this, just like the financial crash of 2008, The world rebounded. Uh, Listen to, you know, the wise advice we're getting, and we'll be through this.
0: We'd like to thank Dr. Vijay Bola for taking the time to talk to us and for being on the front lines of this crisis. To learn more about COVID-19 and the response, please visit the World Health Organization at who.int. And the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention at CDC.gov. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded in Bellingham, Washington, in my house, on my computer, during the 2020 statewide homestay. Our producers are Suzanne Blaze, Robert Clark, and myself, Regina Barbara DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Zara Coakley, Julia Thorpe, and Ariel Shiley. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook, at Spark Science Now. Thank you for listening to Spark Science.